When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, I'm Frank Lavallo, host of Novel Conversations. Before we start the show, we'd like to thank Visible Voice Books for sponsoring the Novel Conversations giveaway, which gives listeners a chance to win all eight classic novels featured in our fifth season. You can enter through our Novel Conversations Facebook page or tweet us at novel underscript converse, that's C-O-N-V-E-R-S, or head to our website blog, thefrontporchpeople.com backslash blog. Visible Voice Books is our local go-to for delving into our favorite books in a relaxed, inviting environment. And if you're not here in Cleveland, Ohio, you can always support Visible Voice Books by shopping online at visiblevoicebooks.com. Visible Voice Books. Without literature, life is hell. All right, up next, Novel Conversations. Frank Lavallo, and this is Novel Conversations, a podcast about the world's greatest stories. For each episode of Novel Conversations, I talk to two readers about one book, and together we summarize the story for you. We introduce you to the characters, we tell you what happens to them, and we read from the book along the way. So if you love hearing a good story, you're in the right place. This novel conversation is about Madame Bovary by Gustave Flaubert, and I'll be joined by our Novel Conversations readers, Katie Smith and Peter Toomey. Katie, Peter, hello. Thank you. Thanks, Frank. It's good to be here. I really appreciate both of you coming in to have this conversation with me about Madame Bovary. Before we get started, let me read you a brief summary of today's novel. Katie, Peter, there's a lot in this novel, and I'm certainly not going to be able to get it all mentioned in a brief summary. Let me try to get us started. Madame Bovary was written, as I said, by Gustave Flaubert and published in 1857. Of course, it was published in French, so what we're reading here is a translation. Charles Bovary is a country physician who, after an unhappy first marriage, marries the daughter of one of his patients, Emma. Emma is eager to leave her father's dirty farm, but finds marriage to be less romantic and satisfying than she expected. Charles is not a prince, but a bumbling, aging old man, a good-hearted, kind man, but he doesn't quite meet all of Emma's expectations. Even at work, he performs more like a veterinarian than a skilled surgeon. Indeed, when he and the local chemist attempt a new procedure on a patient with a club foot, the patient gets gangrene and eventually loses his leg. Disgusted with her life, Emma develops a relationship with Leon Depew, a young lawyer. At first, she refuses to sleep with him, but after he leaves town, she regrets that decision. She then meets another ne'er-do-well, Rudolf Bollinger. He's a wealthy landowner in the area, and he seduces Emma to pass his time. They have a brief but passionate affair. Eventually, Bollinger abandons her, and Emma returns to Lyon, this time giving in to their mutual passion. She soon exhausts her limited funds on trips to visit her lover and love gifts, and knowing that her husband will soon discover her affair when their financial situation is revealed. Emma eventually overdoses on arsenic and dies miserably. Doesn't really sound like a fun story, but it was a great read. It's a tragedy that unravels itself slowly over time. Katie, was that a satisfactory summary for you? It's a tragedy that unravels from the very start. At the opening of the novel, you know this poor man, Charles, will be headed for his own tragedy. What we don't know is how it's going to come about. 
And, of course, then Emma is introduced, and we know that she will be the vehicle of this tragedy. Peter, did you sense the impending tragedy from the very beginning, as Katie did? I think so. There are dark overtones right from the beginning. Mentions of death and things like that, particularly on a rereading. This is a book that's easy to reread. It's a pleasure to reread. So much is foreshadowed each step of the way. It's a very tightly knit novel. All right, great. I think with that introduction, we'll start with a discussion of Charles Bovary. Of course, the title of the novel is Madame Bovary, but it's really Charles who we meet first. This is where the action starts. Katie, do you want to tell me a little bit about Charles Bovary? We meet Charles as a 10-year-old boy entering a new school. You feel for this boy. He's embarrassed. He's painfully shy. And what do the children do? What all children do. They tease the new boy. It pulls you right in. Peter, did you feel that way about Charles? Yes. uh, I hope we don't identify too closely with him, though, because (laughs) I think the modern term would be he's kind of a chump. Um, Country bumpkin, maybe? Yeah, that's probably the better term, country bumpkin. Certainly less than mediocre. So that's how we meet him as a 10-year-old boy. The next thing we know, Charles is off to medical school, about to take his final medical exams. Right. His mother decides that a career in medicine would be just what he needs. Was that a good decision? Somewhat for Charles, not for his patients necessarily. He tries very hard at everything he does. He tries very hard, but it's my impression the medical school and the medical practice 150 years ago was quite different than what we're used to. We call them, in the translation, a doctor, but I think there were levels. I think he's some kind of a health officer and that real doctors are certainly notches above him. He can fix a leg, but he can't perform surgery. He's barely competent as a country doctor. And actually, as a medical student, he fails his first medical exams. He was doing well. He was a good student. But then he had one brief period of trying to experience life a little bit, going to the cafe, etc., and and he just stopped studying. And Charles, without studying, he couldn't get anywhere. And he failed, and then he was told by his mother that he must study. His mother makes a lot of early decisions for him, doesn't she? She makes the next important decision after choosing his career. And that would be? Who he's going to marry. Of course. And she chooses a person who would help his economic situation. And so she chooses for him a widow who's 45 years old. She's supposed to have some wealth, and that's why. But Peter, it's not really a match made in heaven, is it? No. He tolerates it quite well. He he doesn't really complain. But certainly, the wife is the boss and the dominant figure, and it's not a very joyful life for him. In fact, Charles's mother and his new wife seem to get along somewhat better than Charles and his wife do. They find themselves to be birds of a feather, if not uh, comrades in arms. In fact, Charles's first wife resembles his mother very much. So here he is. He's got a new medical practice, married to a woman maybe 20 years his senior. She's holding all the purse strings in the relationship, and then he gets an emergency call and goes out to see a patient. Peter, you want to pick up the narrative from there? Sure. Charles, in the middle of the night, gets up, gets on his horse, and goes out to help mend this leg. Then he finds a very simple fracture, much to his and his patient's good luck. He mends that and is impressed by the farmer's daughter. He spends some time there helping the farmer, hoping to get a good fee from the farmer because he's a wealthy farmer. And it's more like a manor than a small farm. So he spends this time with the father, gets along with him swimmingly, enjoys the daughter's company, and he seems somewhat comfortable with her, but not really making overtures because he's he's not a flirt by any means. Charles keeps making trips out there to make sure that the leg is okay, 
And he develops an increasing relationship, of course, with the daughter. And Katie, we should mention and not keep everyone in suspense, that farmer's daughter is our Emma Bovary. Well, we don't know too much of what Emma is thinking right now. But we do know Charles is falling in love with her. But does Charles know he's falling in love with her? Uh, maybe it would be more precise to say that he'd never act upon it. He certainly finds himself attracted to Emma. And what happens at this point is the widow experiences two blows. One is the fact that she discovers Charles has a soft spot for Emma, and the other is that she finds out that her lawyer has spent all her money. These two blows finish her off conveniently. Conveniently? Conveniently for Charles? Yes, for Charles, and I suppose for Emma, at least at the time. Now, of course, Charles goes into an extended period of mourning, but the word gets out that he's now in need of a wife. Katie, before I marry off Charles and Emma and send them off on their honeymoon, let's talk a little bit about Emma. She comes armed with these ideals, these unrealistic expectations of life, of marriage, of the man she'd like to marry. Part of it is because she was in a convent. Her tendencies to romanticize are actually encouraged by being in an environment of a convent and all the attendant trappings of religion. Right. Her fascination with romanticism was sort of fed by the pomp and circumstance of her religion. Exactly. Her expectations are exceedingly high, and it's at this point that she meets Charles. And decides to run off and marry him. Not quite. The actual agreement of marriage is made by Emma's father. I'm not sure about this. I don't know if he really wanted to ask her himself, but the way it was done, Emma's father asks if she wanted to marry Charles. I think the way it worked was that Charles sort of intimated to the father that he had an interest in Emma, and because he only had been a widower for, I believe, at this point about seven or eight months, he wasn't really sure if he should come out at this point and propose. It's the father who then says, don't worry, I'll take care of Emma, I'll talk to Emma. You just stand outside the house. I think then there's a night scene and the father says, if I bang the shutters, you know you've gotten a good response, then come back in the morning. And in fact, that's what happens. And it's a pattern we'll see with Charles throughout, that he doesn't really make decisions. He always has people helping him and guiding him. People have to nudge him along for everything, and once they nudge him, he goes along. Right, we've seen this several times already. We saw that with his mother, pushing him to a career, pushing him to his first wife. Now he's got a father-in-law pushing him to a new wife. And eventually, I'm pretty sure we're going to see the new wife push him as well. Right. All right, so we've set up that Emma has some high expectations for her marriage. Peter, tell me, are those expectations met? Well, you know, Emma loves sensation. She loves to be excited about things. And even when she's in the convent, she's first in the class, but then she tires of it. And the same with marriage. She enters into it with all these expectations. I think it's within days, though, that she already has definite feelings of disappointment. Should I have done this? And where's this going? You know, I think I have a line here that captures that feeling. Before her marriage, she had thought that she had love within her grasp. But since the happiness which she had expected this love to bring her hadn't come, she supposed she must have been mistaken. And Emma tried to imagine just what was meant in life by the words bliss, passion, and rapture. Words that seemed so beautiful to her in books, but were not at all like the life she was now living. So those expectations could not have been met. No matter what kind of man Charles had been, he never would have been able to meet those expectations. We only get a glimpse of her unhappiness during the early time of her marriage to Charles. When we really know there's going to be problems, or at least for me, when I realized that tragedy was going to be the common thread in this novel was when they go to their first ball. Once he moves to the new town and sets up his practice, he's invited to the landowner's manor for a ball. They go there for a weekend, and Emma will never be the same. 
This ball was the absolute symbol of wealth that she could never attain for her life because of who she chose to marry. Flaubert spends quite a bit of time telling you not only what the ballroom looks like, but he tells you about the people. If you remember one quick scene, a woman drops a note into a gentleman's hat, and this was an assignation that was going to be occurring at some point. Now, if Emma had been wealthy, she could have been unhappy in her marriage and had these lovers on the side like many of the wealthy people did, but she wasn't. So she leaves the landowner's mansion, and life is as dreary or even more dreary than when she went off to the ball. But Peter, Katie, it wasn't just the ball itself that gave her this rapture. At the ball, she meets a young man and has a few dances with him, goes outside, drinks a little cider with him, and she likes the attention that she's being paid by these other men. It comes as an awakening to her of all the things that Charles will not be able to give to her. She's a very pretty girl, and that's what got her invited to the ball. When the Count's servant saw her and he says, oh, that's a pretty girl, she would fit in at this ball. At the ball, another young noble is dancing with her, flirting with her. Same thing, it's because she's so pretty. Now, she's certainly ready, willing, and able to live that life. It's a very Hollywood life, and Flaubert very much paints these lavish scenes like that. But Peter, instead of appreciating her husband for his ability to, to get her to this ball, partake in the events that are happening in the manor, she now realizes that this is really what she wants, and he will never be able to give it to her. And that's when I started to realize this novel is not going to end well for Charles. And noticeably in our discussion, where is her husband? He just kind of stands there, leans against the pole, gets tired, and wants to go home. He can't wait to go home while she's living this flirtatious life. And let's focus on her flirtatious life. They go home again, and Katie, as you said, she realizes this is a drab and dreary existence that she's gotten herself into. She looks for rays of hope, and so who do we meet now? Well, we have to see it as it's put into the book. She tries to fall in love with Charles. She reads poems and recites them in the moonlight, hoping that she's going to get struck with love for Charles. So she does try. That's true. That's counteracted with the detailed description of a mealtime. And Charles, one of his numerous failings, is that he's boorish. He has no appreciable table manners. He is appalling to sit across from. So we have to remember that she does try. You're right. She does try. But now that she's had her weekend at the manor, as you say, even his slurping of the soup drives are crazy. She is very unhappy. No matter what he does, no matter what he says, he's not going to make her happy. That's right. That's when we're introduced to Leon, a law clerk. He works for the notary, and he is unhappy with his position, and he has sensibilities that Emma appreciates. He likes to read the romantic books that she likes to read. He enjoys the poetry. Right. He enjoys the music. Right. So when they meet and start a conversation, they hit it off. And then Peter, it's just as quickly becomes a flirtation. But it doesn't really go much further than a flirtation, does it? No, no. They are very much alike. Neither one of them wants to make the first move. Probably both are willing, but they never take that step because it's a new thing for them. Not only is it a new thing for them, but they do feel constrained by the morals of the time. Oh, certainly, certainly. This is a book about adultery, a shocking book for 150 years ago. All right, so Leon and Emma have their flirtation. Eventually, though, Leon leaves town. Now we meet another man, Rudolph. He really impresses Emma, doesn't he? You know, the difference between Leon and Rudolph is that Leon was innocent and that he's never done anything such as had an affair. Rudolph does this as an advocation. 
The difference that Emma brings to him, which is very intriguing to Rudolph, is that he's used to having affairs with women who understand who he is and what he is about and what he's trying to do. And he wants someone who also wants what he wants, to have an affair with someone who basically just wants to have an affair. Well, that's not quite what Emma wants, is it? It's not what Emma wants. Rudolph's first thought is, let's see, here's how I'll get her, but how do I get rid of her? But with Emma, this is what life could become. Now things are going to be perfect. She's not going into this for an affair, is she? The affair to end all affairs for her, while still maintaining the semblance of a married life. But that's not how it turns out. (laughs) No, it's not. It builds to a point where Emma wants to run off with Rudolph. But on the day that it's supposed to happen, Rudolph composes a very cold, calculated letter to her, saying how this would ruin your life, Emma. I can't do this to you. I love you too much. Goodbye. I'm going off to Paris. And he does. And when he leaves, she's bedridden for, I think, almost two months. And then her husband Charles comes up with a great idea how to shock her out of this depression. He decides to take her to an opera. And at the opera, Emma again sees Leon, her first love, if you will. They're just so happy to see one another that others at the opera have to tell them, hey, quiet. It's, it's almost like a modern movie here. <laughs> that's, right. that's right. But but Charles is pleased with this because finally his wife is showing a little, a little life, a little animation. Yes, uh, of, of course. Now, Emma and Leon start their affair, and they develop quite a torrid affair. They do go on for a while. Yes. She impresses Leon a little bit with how good she is conducting an affair. <laughs> that's right. So clearly, this is a novel about adultery, but just as clearly, there are other things Flaubert wants to talk about in his novel, a few other themes he wants to develop. Uh, One of those themes he gets to, I believe, through the use of a couple of, let's call them, minor characters in the novel, the priest and the pharmacist. But before we dive into these two characters, let's take a quick break to talk about our sponsor for Season 5 of Novel Conversations. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. The Great Courses Plus. I don't know if you've heard of this before, but I think for anyone who loves to learn and further their knowledge, you'll really like hearing about this wonderful service. The Great Courses Plus is a streaming service brought to you by The Great Courses, the leading global media brand for lifelong learning and personal enrichment. You'll get to choose from thousands of in-depth videos by the world's greatest professors from Harvard, Yale, and Stanford, and experts from National Geographic and the Smithsonian. This is college-level learning. But without student loans, the pressure of homework, or the pressure of grades. And the Great Courses Plus app makes it possible to watch or listen to lectures at any time. I actually have a recommendation for you to check out. I have a personal love for dystopian and utopian novels, and I actually teach my own students in a literature class Sir St. Thomas More's great work, Utopia. The Great Courses Plus offers the course Great Utopian and Dystopian Works of Literature. This course compares extreme alternative realities and classics like Brave New World to blockbusters like The Hunger Games and digs into the darkness at the center of perfect societies, the hope behind the terror, and so much more. To access this course and so much more, we have a special limited-time offer for you, our listeners. Right now, they're giving my listeners a free month of unlimited access to their entire library. 
But to get this offer, you need to sign up now through my special URL. Go to thegreatcoursesplus.com backslash novel. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com backslash novel. Please check out The Great Courses Plus right now for a free month of online learning. All right, back to our discussion about the novel Madame Bovary by Gustave Flaubert. We were just about to explore some of the additional themes Flaubert was trying to develop in his novel. I think he has something to say about the contrast between a believer in science and a believer in faith. It's my feeling that he gets into that discussion with two of these minor characters, the priest and the pharmacist. Homais, the pharmacist, is a complete busybody. He thinks he knows everything, and he's always offering his advice, whether it's wanted or not, and it's seldom wanted. But he meets up and continually badgers the local parish priest, his counterpart, who is a man of the cloth, but I'm not sure how much of a man of the faith. He's more of a, of a businessman for the church. Now, at one point, for example, Emma goes to him for spiritual guidance. He just can't be bothered with that. But when the priest debates with Homais as to the efficacy, if you will, of religion, oh, now that becomes rather classic. In fact, I have a great line from the novel. Let me read it for you. Here is the pharmacist Homais talking to the priest. My God is the God of Socrates, of Franklin, of Voltaire. My credo is the credo of Rousseau. I adhere to the immortal principles of 89. Katie, I think that's 1789, the French Revolution. Yeah, I think so. Uh, he continues, I have no use for the kind of God who goes walking in his garden with a stick, sends his friends to live in the belly of whales, gives up the ghost with a groan, and then comes back to life three days later. Those things aren't only absurd in themselves, they're completely opposed to all physical laws. So the pharmacist really is a man of science. But the priest... I think the priest is more of a two-dimensional character. He simply represents traditional religion. In the convent, there's a time when Madame Bovary goes to him for help. As Peter said, he is not able to help her. And in fact, when the chemist and the priest have their words, really, the chemist comes out on top. You know, but for Flaubert, I think neither one of these men really are ideals. I think they're both somewhat two-dimensional. I think Flaubert would reject the total reliance on science of the pharmacist, as well as the total reliance on faith and hope of the priest. I think they're bad examples of what they represent. Homais is sometimes just the comic relief. It's almost the Falstaff. Yeah, right. <laughs> and interesting enough, the pharmacist is looking to win a prize, and through machinations, he eventually does win this Legion of Honor. And in fact, that's the very last line of the novel. This novel is called Madame Bovary, and it's all about Madame Bovary, her affairs, her eventual suicide. And yet almost the last entire chapter, the last paragraph, the last line, are all about this pharmacist. I found it interesting that Flaubert decided to end this novel with that character. Well, you're talking about themes, and one of the themes threading throughout the book is the middle class, the bourgeoisie. The chemist is the example of all that's worst in the bourgeoisie, and the fact that he gets a medal of honor at the end is really the most ironic piece of all. But he's a key character in that he's the one that pushes Charles to take Emma to the opera. He's the one that pushes Charles to do an operation way beyond his abilities. And that takes a cripple and virtually kills him. And it's this operation which Emma hoped would force Charles into a position of prestige when he completely fails and makes a fool of himself and more of a cripple of the poor porter. Emma loses any respect that she had had for him at all. 
Katie, when we first started this conversation, I asked you to introduce us to Charles. I, I find this to be a very interesting part of the novel. Let's go back to that beginning. Tell us how we're introduced to Charles. Well, this is what's so fascinating about Madame Bovary. When the novel opens, we're in the classroom. The narrator is one of the classmates, and that's how it opens. The story of how 10-year-old Charles comes to the classroom and is ridiculed by his classmates. This narrator is probably one of the boys that was teasing Charles Bovary. And then, as the novel moves along, this narrator steps back. He becomes less of a first person and more of a third person. And as a third person, he gives you objective information as well as subjective information. You know, guys, I was a little confused by this. Any feel for why Flaubert started it this way and then moved on after that first chapter? Other than it works? <laughs> it does work. <laughs> okay. It's done smoothly, but when it's described, it does not sound as if it will be smooth. And Flaubert has a varying viewpoint, as sometimes this third person will make observations as to what's right and what's wrong. And sometimes he gets into Emma's head. And then sometimes he's an outsider. So it's a varying thing, but I feel that it's done very smoothly. Also, another point. When we first talked about this novel, we said it was a novel of adultery. But I think there's another issue running through this story, and, and that relates to Emma Bovary. I think she's a manic depressive. You know, Frank, I, I think I agree with that. Uh, but I'm not a psychologist, all right? But in my untrained opinion, I think that she does exhibit some manic depressive themes. And this was the beginning of the age of the psychological novel. So you may be right. That may be what Flaubert was playing with. You know, Peter, that's a great point. Madame Bovary by Flaubert is considered one of the early uses of psychoanalysis in a, in a realistic novel. In fact, I've made a note of a couple of lines here, and I think this might be what Flaubert is telling us. Tell me what you think. Some days she chatted endlessly, almost feverishly, and such a period of overexcitement would suddenly be followed by a torpor in which she neither spoke nor moved. At such times she would revive herself with eau de cologne, pouring a full bottle over her arms. Or perhaps try this line. Everything appeared to her as though shrouded in vague, hovering blackness, and grief swirled into her soul, moaning softly like the winter wind in a deserted castle. To me, that sounds like the symptoms of a manic depressive. Some sort of clinical depression is probably what she's suffering from. And I don't know if this is an appropriate time to bring it up, but Flaubert did have similar problems. He did. Similar bouts of what they called nervous attacks. And at one point in speaking about this novel, he did say, Madame Bovary, she is I. So to what extent he means that, I don't know. But it is interesting that both Madame Bovary and Flaubert suffer from nervous attacks of some kind. And in the modern context, certainly there are the various addictions that she exhibited. Even the shopping addiction, where she just completely spent all of Charles's money through a power of attorney. And he didn't even know it. And that's one of the themes that completely brought down the family. And Peter, not only does she spend all of Charles's money, she spends money they don't even have yet. She signed promissory note after promissory note, and I would argue it's actually the impending financial ruin that causes her to commit suicide and not the possibility of her adulterous affairs are going to be revealed. I agree. It's the financial destitution that she and her family will be left in that really drives her to it. I don't think she's embarrassed by the affair. She makes that clear. She did things out in front so everyone knew she was having the affair. 
I don't think that was the issue. No, I certainly agree. As the affair went on and she got more bold and brazen about it, she'd walk down the street with her arm's length gloves and smoking cigarettes and dressing mannishly. In fact, she even did her hair up like a man once when she went to a party with Leon. All right, Peter, Katie, in this last segment, what I'd like to get from you is perhaps some of your favorite lines or maybe a memorable moment or something that you're going to take away and and always remember about this novel. Well, I'd like to point out how beautiful the writing is in this novel. One of my favorite scenes is the agricultural fair in which Emma is seduced by Rudolph. Now, when this scene occurs, at the same time, you have this very torrid affair beginning. You have the animals being sold. You have farmers getting medals. The comparison is brilliant. If you can't think of a reason to read Madame Bovary, you should read it just for this scene. That's how brilliant I think it is. Katie, I completely agree with you. Peter? Well, to me, what the novel is really about is that people don't know one another and they don't communicate. Now, for example, the marriage of Charles and Emma. Now, they're both, in effect, good people, even though some terrible things go on. They have no idea what's going through one another's minds. And that trait exists through all the various characters. As they speak, you hear it. A character will be saying one thing, and another character is hearing something else. I think that pretty well sums up Flaubert. No one could ever express the exact measure of his needs or conceptions or sorrows. Quote, The human language is like a cracked kettle on which we tap crude rhythms for bears to dance to, while we long to make music to move the stars. And that's the end of the quote from Flaubert. That's one of the most quoted sentences. Is it? Yeah. (laughs) Well, I got that one right anyway. (laughs) I also have an interesting moment here. A lot of people consider this a novel of realism, of Flaubert trying to write and trying to express what he saw actually happening in his times and in his place. But it's my understanding that he wasn't really happy being considered a realist. He wanted there to be some art and less artifice in his writing. And he has Emma say these lines. Nowadays, I'm crazy about a different kind of thing. Stories full of suspense, stories that frighten you. I hate to read about low-class heroes and their down-to-earth concerns, the sort of thing the real world's full of. And yet, Peter, Katie, that's what this novel is about, low-class heroes and their down-to-earth concerns, sort of what the real world is about. And yet Flaubert, at least to Emma, perhaps wants a little bit more art and a little less artifice. Another angle, perhaps we might read this novel a little differently than the reader did in 1857. I don't think there's any doubt, Peter. Yeah, see, but I think that's one of the strengths of this novel, that it changes with the times, and it could be read in a very modern light, and it can fit very modern situations. You know, that's always been my definition of a great book. A great book is both timeless and timely. Timeless in the sense that it's been read for literally hundreds of years, and also timely. No matter when you come to one of these great novels, it has something for you. When you're a 14-year-old boy and you read Catcher in the Rye, you identify with, with Holden Caulfield. When you're 44 and have a teenager like Holden Caulfield, you certainly are not identifying with him. So, Peter, I think you're right. We come to this novel at a different age, at a different sensibility, and with our own ideals and thoughts of society. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I think all first-time readers will recognize the pharmacist. They will even recognize Emma and Charles. 
These are real people that you've seen before, that you have encountered before. And you may or may not find yourself in those characters, which could be a good thing or a bad thing. So true, so true, very good. Uh, Peter, Katie, we're gonna have to stop our conversation here. Again, I wanna thank you, Katie Smith and Peter Toomey, for both coming in and having this conversation about the novel, Madame Bovary by Gustave Flaubert. You've been listening to Novel Conversations. Novel Conversations is a production of the Front Porch People. For more information about upcoming Novel Conversations, you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. Or go to our website at thefrontporchpeople.com. And if you like the podcast, don't forget to leave us a review. It really helps. A special thanks to producer Julie Fink, audio engineers Sean Ruhlhoffman, Eric Coltnow, and Dave Douglas, and executive producer Joan Andrews. We'd also like to thank our researchers, Patrick and Joan Andrews. And I'm your host, Frank Lavallo. Until next time, I hope you find yourself in a novel conversation. I'm Allison Holland, host of the Kennedy Dynasty podcast. Equipped with a microphone and a long-term fascination of the Kennedy family, I am joined by an incredible cast of experts, friends, and guests to take you on a fun, relaxed, yet informative journey through history and pop culture. From book references to fashion to philanthropy to our modern expectations of the presidency itself, you'll see that there is so much more to Kennedy than just JFK or conspiracy theories. Join me for the Kennedy Dynasty podcast. This podcast was produced with the support of the Ohio Motion Picture Tax Credit and in partnership with the Ohio Development Services Agency.